Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Thanks of democracy. Very good. You and Nadi, Virginia Marshall, Wiradjurija. Welcome to Democracy Sausage. I'm Virginia Marshall and I'm filling in at the barbecue hot plate for Mark Kenny, who's on a well-deserved holiday break somewhere in Australia. So what am I doing here? Well, I wrote a book called Overturning Aquinellius, Securing Aboriginal Water Rights, about one of my deep passions is water and sea rights. But I'm also here advocating on behalf of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and community, and that's what I love to do. And I'm also really looking forward to telling you a lot more about Uncle Ray Minicong, but just a little bit about myself. I'm the inaugural Indigenous Postdoctoral Fellow to the Schools of Regulation and Global Governance and the Fenner School of Environment and Society. And uh, I am just very passionate about talking to people and especially in our community, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community, sharing those stories and asking those questions that many times so many people want to ask an Aboriginal person or a Torres Strait Islander person but they just don't feel that comfortable about um, raising those issues. So, you know, today is, is sort of is that fireside chat, is that time where we can sit down and really discuss some of these things with Uncle Ray. And I'm hoping that you'll find a comfortable place and you can sit down and just chill. So today will be a topic of a real interest, not only to Uncle Ray and myself, but to all of the other listeners. And it's going to be really exploring what does Uncle Ray do that makes him an extraordinary human being? Pastor Ray is a descendant of the Cubby Cubby Nation and the Garang Garang Nation of Southeast Queensland. Uncle Ray is also a descendant of the South Sea Islander people with connections to the people of Ambran Island in Vanuatu. Uncle Ray is also the chairperson of the Sydney Anglican Indigenous Peoples Committee 
and the National Secretary of Aboriginal Evangelical Fellowship. Uncle Ray is also a director of Bungie Consultancies, which supports Aboriginal leadership and business initiatives with a number of corporate clients and is also a consultant on a range of projects which include Kinchinal Boys Home and the University of New South Wales. Uncle Ray also earned a Bachelor of Arts in Theology at Murdoch University and has helped establish the Aboriginal Education Unit where he worked as its coordinator. Uncle Ray has also worked for World Vision Australia on Indigenous programs and has a whole list, a very long list of incorporation with uh, very important issues to do with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Uncle Ray is also an ambassador for Better Futures Australia. He's a very uh, hard worker in the Indigenous Peoples Organisation of Australia, fighting for human rights and advocacy for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And also he gets time to be a husband and a father and a grandfather. So let's get into asking Uncle Ray what really inspires him every day to get up and do what he does. Uncle Ray, welcome to the program. Thanks, Virginia. After reading that, I feel tired. I think I might go and have a sleep. (laughs) Oh, no time for sleeping right now. Well, you've got that nice comfortable chair that I can imagine everybody sitting in right now and just having a, a real good old chat. So we call it yarning. When you get up in the morning and, and you think about what the day ahead of you is and you know that it's COVID and a lot of people are frustrated, especially now that we're in lockdown, um, we've got a lot of um, communities in Dubbo and, and far west of New South Wales that are, are really concerned about their future and what, what life holds for everybody out of this um, coronavirus. So how do we understand that position from what you live and breathe every day in your understanding of your belief and your faith? In, in, a, in a sense, it's not, it's not a surprise that we're in this situation uh, because it has been building up for quite some time. And for me, you, you just can't you know, disturb mother. I'm talking about Mother Earth, whether it be Earth or ocean or sky. You, you just can't keep doing these things and expect Mother not to retaliate or start to say to its children, hey, I think you've gone a bit too far. You're getting a bit too naughty. I need to uh, just slow you down a bit and make you think about things. And so this is not a surprise, I think, for lots of Indigenous peoples even though we're not the ones who are the perpetrators of a lot of this stuff, when you consider that, uh, you know, for 60,000 years, our knowledge, our wisdom, uh, our resources, our ingenuity, uh, our integrity, and the ways in which our laws operated, both L-A-W and L-O-R-E, preserved our country for 60,000 years and made sure that it was... uh, sustainable for the next uh, generations. I mean, you know, the old people lived under that seven-generational principle that we here at this particular generation draw upon the knowledge, wisdom, and expertise that is passed down not just from my father or my grandfather, but from my great-grandfather, so that we can make very informed, well-informed decisions about how we decide what to do in this particular generation that will ensure that not only my children or my grandchildren, but my great-grandchildren 
will benefit from the decisions that I'm making now. So I'm actually, you know, we in the old ways, we would be making decisions for three generations and more down the track when we get together in our ways of governance to ensure that they're well and truly looked after and cared for. I think that's the very depth of what uh, love is uh, from a uh, from an Indigenous perspective. And Uncle Ray, there's there's something more that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people really see underneath all of those other issues uh, and to deal with coronavirus or incarceration and and just generally a whole range of human rights issues is the understanding of many people of your generation too that have been under the Aboriginal Protection Act. So when you think of that timeline before 1967, what did that mean to you when you know looking back from 2021, is this really a, a, a better time to be born than what you've experienced as a young person? That's a good question, Virginia. Sometimes I don't think we have moved away from the old uh, Aboriginal protection policies. Uh, And the reasons why I say that is that those protection policies were were taken over by the federal government. And so we're still under uh, particular policies that govern us uh, still to this day. So it, you know, the, the ways in which our issues are dealt with are dealt with politically and continual, continue to, to be that way. When you consider that uh, we every state still has an Aboriginal uh, affairs minister, has an Aboriginal affairs policy, uh, every, the, the national uh, government has an Aboriginal affairs policy, these, these things just are, are, uh, are a clear indicator that we haven't, we haven't broken away from the, those invasion policies of the invaders. They, they still want to control who we are, how we live on our country, and how we then uh, uh, behave in our own country. So I can't see how we have gone anywhere from 1967 onwards. The only people who have really benefited from 1967 is really the non-Indigenous population and the politicians, not our people. We haven't gone anywhere. We're still stuck in, uh, well, for me anyways, I still feel like I'm still stuck on the mish. And and when you say that, you know, I'm sure that uh, that there was so much that community um, found joy in and, you know, came together, family time, in, in the background of immense sadness and also being under the control of that Protection Act. But it's also a whole understanding too of people not being counted in the census, as you know, the the Australian Constitution uh, did not recognise that. But is it not also that Aboriginal people were not counted as human beings and how do we actually really realise that today that young people have to connect to their identity to again understand and appreciate much of what your generations had to live through? Mm. 
Yeah, you're identifying one of our another one of our very serious issues and challenges that we've faced, uh, and it's not a recent issue. It it has been there for, for quite some time, even before 1967, when uh, you know the mission that I was brought up on, way up in far north Queensland on the Atherton Table Tableland, a little place called Pinnacle Pocket, as well as in other places like uh, Garbutt, where uh, where our people was were designated to live. Um, the issues of uh, putting us all together as one places a long way away from our country, our heritage, our history, our culture, uh, those things to me were a deliberate act to actually break down our identity and stuff. And um, me, I, I personally, I'm, I'm from the Cubby Cubby people my fa- on my father's side, and that's in southeast Queensland. And on my mother's side, Gurungurung, which is, you know, around the Bundaberg, north of that area. But I was brought up on a mission way up in far north Queensland. Now, my father was a was a cane cutter at that time because he also has uh, his father, my grandfather on my dad's side, was uh, forcibly removed from Ambram Island and brought over here, you know, to build the sugar industry. So they were all cane cutters. So we had, the only freedom we had was when we went and, with Dad on on the cane farms, cut cane and then back on the Michigan. So I can't see much change. Much has changed for us as Indigenous peoples in terms of finding out, out who we are. And if it wasn't for my father and my mother, in terms of continually letting us know who we are and taking us back into those countries there on regular occasions to visit all of his siblings and my uncles and grandmothers and all of that. If I didn't have that, I'd, I'd probably be a lost person myself. But I just, you know, take my hat off to my father and my mother for making sure that they did those journeys and whether, and, and you know, we travelled on the on the trains at those days. Uh, Dad had enough money from the sugarcane industry to buy a car and so we'd hop in a car and go down, back down to Bundaberg and reconnect with all of my uncles and aunties and and uh, connections back there in terms of country. You know, he reminded us of all of those ceremonies that used to take place down there, you know, the bunyanut ceremonies and festivals and all of those kinds of things were a part of my upbringing. But then when we left those places and on the roads, we was always under this uh, uh, order from mum and dad that if the police ever picked us up, that we were to get out of the car and take off into the bush and don't let them catch us. <laughs> and so what that taught me and uh, my other siblings is the fact that we always knew where we were in the country. And so we always knew our way back home through the country. So it didn't matter what part of Queensland we were in, I was home. I knew where I was. I knew how to get home. And so it was It was uh, one of the things that, you know, you, your parents just taught you and it became almost natural to know those kind of uh, uh, sites and places where you needed to go home. There was all of these compasses that you could, you know, set your compass to that mountain there or, or this particular river and you'd be home. And a lot of those myths, Uncle Ray, were that we were nomadic and just roamed around. But, of course, that wasn't true. And we found out that those stories were manufactured to really make Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people not look human. 
to many others. Oh, yeah, look, the damage of Terra Nullius will, I think, go for another, maybe another two or three generations until we can really settle, resettle who we are and resettle some of the issues around sovereignty and identity for, amongst ourselves. And, you know, I've, I've worked with, for example, the stolen generations, and I grew up with that. The most amazing thing for me, living with that particular regime under the Queensland government, uh, was the fact that, you know, you played with these children one day and you thought that, oh, they were gone and you thought they went on holidays or, or, or something. And you didn't know the trauma and tragedy that was going on in that home with mum and dad, you know, with uncle and auntie who, who you, you knew personally that their children had been taken. And uh, you catch up with them, you know, some 20 or 30 years later and say, hey, where you been? Where you been? And they tell you this story and you think, flaming heck, I didn't know that. And so, you know, you didn't know that even your own neighbours were taken. And I know even even on the Mish, when uh, when the black car came into the community, there were, you could, every mother in the community you could hear the screams and I could still hear those screams today. It was just saying to the children now, run into the bush, run, run. And so we would run off into the bush thinking that, uh, you know, the war had begun and not knowing that this black car was such a huge, big, evil beast that would uh, come into our communities and frighten the living daylights out of every mother, every father, and uh, every other and every child in that community. It was quite quite a a time, yeah. And, and when you really think about those those deepest emotions, and you've understood that through your father, and and he was a role model for you. How do we understand forgiveness in those places for, in our hearts where we've been through those experiences in life? Um. Look, just just before we go on to that, that you know, we're still we're still facing this issue of uh, our children being taken, uh, and today it's much more open. Uh, whereas back in those days, there it was more secretive; you didn't know when they were coming. But now it's just so open, uh, and the the policies are so actually more powerful today than they were in those old days. Uh, um, and I find that very, very, very deeply disturbing. So, you know, I've been working with Stolen Generation for the last 45 years. Uh, I've lived with this particular issue. And you, you, you still feel those older pangs of uh, uh, and triggers that, that, you lived lived up with you you were grown up with in, on community, so they're still there. Uh, I guess when I look at my mother and father, um, what made me realise uh, their strength and resilience was really their faith uh, and their belief in who they were, and also the community that we lived in and uh, their strength and their belief in who they were, even though we might have been all put together in one particular community from all different parts of the country, there was this incredible strength in who we were uh, 
and uh, uh, and how we could be uh, a community even in that kind of process. There was an old, uh, you know, I, I still recall the old people. Um, they had one one particular saying that I still it still resonates with me today. Um, under the old, you know, under the old regimes, when when um, we would see uh, maybe a new new uh, Aboriginal person coming into the community or coming into the town, there, you know, they would use this word: "Hey, country, how are you? Where are you coming from?" That word, country, they would call each other country or countrymen. Hey, countrymen, how are you? And that word there was very, very powerful and still resonates with me today. It was a way of identifying ourselves as belonging to country, knowing that we were reinforcing that identity with our country and with each other, that we're all countrymen, that we're all from this country. And uh, that was a very powerful thing. And I still reson- it still resonates with me today. And I'm, I'm, I'm so uh, a little disappointed that we don't use that kind of language more often. Hey, countrymen. You know, I could say that to you, Virginia. Hey, country. Yeah, you. Where are you from? And you can feel the, the, uh, the difference in your own spirit of me reinforcing your identity your dignity, your integrity, your connection to country, just by saying that. Hey, country, how are you? So what you're saying really, Uncle Ray, to everyone listening is that words are really powerful. Oh, language is power, yeah. It certainly is, yeah. yeah. And, and also if that is the case that it's, it really is powerful, well, how do we look again to those ideas, those emotions, those places and times that it happens, that we take that forgiveness and what we say to others who have committed wrongs, and we saw that with the Jewish people, for example, in the Holocaust, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples recognise the mass assimilation, the massacres, um, the murders, uh, the wrongful executions, etc., as also events that didn't have had to happen. They were, th- they were those events that should not have happened given what we know today where um, genocide is still occurring over and across the world. So how do we actually understand I'm sorry when you really look at forgiveness? Forgiveness, it, that there's a whole range of other uh, ingredients that go with uh, apology as well as with uh, forgiveness and if I say I'm sorry there is also included in that word or in that language is the opportunity to actually reconcile differences and make friends again based upon equity not equality and I think that's part of the missing link within this. The other other part of it too is that uh, you and I are speaking in a foreign language to each other. This is not the language of this country. This English language comes from England. And so we're using other people's language to try to describe some of the very deep uh, 
uh, inner workings and language that comes from this country when we talk about uh, uh, forgiveness and uh, togetherness. Because if I said it in my language, you would understand very, very clearly what I meant by the word forgiveness. Because with it would go the idea that when I forgive you, I'm also making sure that uh, your your pain and your whatever I've wounded you with is recompensed in a way in which uh, it, it's duly seen as the as the uh, the act that I've committed against you uh, is is in equal proportion to what what the whether you want to call it a crime or or a pain or a hurt or something that I've said. So apology has to come with all of those kind of kind of things or forgiveness. And it, what was only last week that we saw for the first time that the national government uh, started to uh, compensate for the things that they had done in under their regime because the Northern Territory and the ACT came under uh, Commonwealth laws, not under state laws, whereas the states... Uh, compensated, and there's still some states who still have to work on their con- compensation uh, and the ways in which they deal with that uh, in their, uh, you know, as quickly as they can. But the problem we have today is this forgiveness and all of this stuff is wrapped up in litigation. And so if you want to get that kind of uh, reciprocal process happening, you have to go to a court of law and prove that you've had gone through this painful experience to the perpetrator. <laughs> and so we're, we're, we're locked into this foreign judicial system that can only hear this kind of crime in a court of law. And that's one of the major challenges that we face as Indigenous peoples because that's not our system, that's not our culture, that's not our law, and that's not our ways of dealing with these kind of issues where a breach in relationship has has occurred. And do you think that other bridge that we really have to make uh, is also a bridge to understand how we actually fit into that national story, that national history at the War Memorial. And the Frontier Wars, I understand that Brendan Nelson had an opportunity to include that, uh, but he was very resistant. So what is it about the Frontier Wars that really um, scares people or they just don't want to proceed into that truth-telling with Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people? What do you think really has put a stop on those sort of issues? Yeah, it, ideological wars are different to actual physical wars. And this country's gone through many, many physical wars here. Um, you know, I'm living here in Sydney now, and I've been on the hill here in Sydney where uh, Pemelway was captured and beheaded. And I stood on that hill, and uh, I've been to other massacre sites even here in Sydney. Uh, so, you know, the blood of the old people in this particular country still cries out for justice. But to try to fight this physical conflict through ideological means is is quite a challenge. 
when you've got the notions that we, we, we as Indigenous people know and have experienced, one, the concept of terra nullius, we didn't exist until 1993 um, when Mabo sort of brought a bit of uh, justice to us there in terms of what he achieved for us. And then the litigation that went on with, uh, with uh, Love and Trump versus the Commonwealth in terms of identity issues, and that was only at the beginning of this year. So, you know, do you base your... Uh, your future on litigation or do you base your future on a way in which there is true real avenues for for reconciliatory processes that don't need to go through a law court system and if you look for example at the the uh, uh, commonwealth's uh, compensation claims just for those victims it was only $75,000 how small is that when you compare that the litmus test for children who had been taken under the old regimes came out of the uh, the case in uh, in South Australia there for uh, Trevorrow, yeah, Bruce Trevorrow, Trevorrow, yeah, yeah, you know, his seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars that was the basic cost for being forcibly removed. When you got seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars compared to seventy five thousand dollars, you realise that there is an ideological war continually as to what kind of pain our stolen generations have experienced, what type of pain that is, whether they've been forcibly removed, whether they've been put into institutions like here in New South Wales, the Kinchula Boys or the Bombardieri or the Cootamundra Girls or whether they've been adopted out, or whether they've been fostered out. You know, we haven't had those cases even brought into this into this particular area yet. But not only that, the compensation claims that they've received has not also had with it the ways of trying to find some relief or release from the pains that they've been suffering all their lives. And so where is that kind of... Uh, compensatory processes where our people can find a place to heal. Where is the healing centres? Where is those kind of things that are necessary for that? And, you know, it's just not a, not only as the, you know, the Royal Commission into Sexual Abuse and stuff uh, has had been handed out by the federal government, what, only a number of years ago, they haven't yet resolved that for the for the non-indigenous peoples either. That's so. Um, it, it seems like this is a country that hates its children and uh, deals with its children in such an incredibly uh, criminal way. You know, the criminalisation of children in this country needs to be examined in its fullest capacity, so that. Uh, uh, the citizens of this country can come to grips with uh, this very, very important, serious issue. And these issues and more we'll talk about when we come back from the break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Uncle Ray, welcome back. I'm Virginia Marshall. Hi, everyone. And I'm still here in conversation with Uncle Ray and many of the experiences he's had over his lifetime, but also to understand really how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have experienced so many different issues uh, that stand out and that we're still fighting for. So, Uncle Ray, I know that you love singing and you love music. And isn't it amazing that that's something that's shared with a lot of other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community? And I, I remember that when I was on a bus uh, to a conference in Aotearoa and uh, one of the Pacifica young men got out the guitar and started playing all the way to the conference venue where we were going to eat that night. And what an amazing feeling when music's a part of just everyday life. What does that mean to you? It's simply basic stuff. It's it's not uh, you know there's there's no academics into it. There's no study in it. It's just natural, normal, cultural, spiritual life of Indigenous peoples globally. We love music. We love humour. We love relationships. We love to converse with each other. We love to tell our stories. It's just natural, normal stuff that we thought was just being human. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, playing the guitar or any other instrument or singing is just such a spiritual experience, but also the writing of poetry, it's something that you also love is is writing. But can you tell us about the the Coloured Diggers poem? Why was that so important to you? When I first started the Coloured Digger project back in 2002, Six, we had a, a little ceremony, a little crossroads church that I was uh, conducting at the time. We decided on on Anzac Day that we would have a service just specifically for our own Indigenous peoples. And so we gathered a number of people together and we had this wonderful, wonderful ceremony there. And after we did that, we, we felt that we needed to go a little bit further. So we decided that next year we would... Uh, just march in the streets of Redfern and me being the one who was going to lead this march and lead them from the block up to this church called uh, St. Saviour's in Glebe. It was a long walk, too. Long <laughs> not walk. for you, not for you. <laughs> <laughs> I was younger then. <laughs> and and anyways, uh, when we decided to do that, we needed some kind of inspiration. So I, I found this uh, poem, the Colour Digger poem, 
There was a number of beautiful poems there too. There was other ones that were written, but this one here seemed to attract not only myself, and I shared it with the the other people who were who I was working with, and it was mainly the non-indigenous person, uh, Chris Carbon, who me and him were the were the uh, main instigators of all this. He was he was what he called. He says, Look, "Ray, I'm the Gabra gatherer." And you be the curry gatherer, and we'll work together, and we'll have the ceremony. <laughs> we'll have this march next year and ceremony. And he knew people galore. So when I gave him the poem, he shared that with a lots of people, artists, and all kinds of people. And that was the spirit and the intent. Nobody knew who the color digger was, including myself. The spirit of that particular poem actually echoed what had happened to our soldiers uh, who came back from all these overseas conflicts and came back under the regimes that they, uh, the Aboriginal Protection Acts that, uh, from each, each state that they came back to, they weren't given any of those benefits and they still didn't have at that time a voice in Parliament. And so that particular poem was the inspiration behind it that, motivated the rest of the community to actually, uh, you know, become part of this. It was the spirit in that poem that captured their attention. And then eventually we, we you know, we, we found so much more information about this person. The colour digger had a real name. His name was Harold Weston, and he fought in Papua New Guinea as well as in other places. I think he was over in, in the Middle East as well. And... Uh, it was written by a Canadian guy. It wasn't written by an Australian. It was written by a Canadian. And I think all of those elements to this mysterious person called a coloured digger added to the mystery around this mystery that needed to be resolved in this country, and that is the issue around the recognition, the respect, and the honour of Indigenous soldiers. And so out of that, we decided that we'd have a little march in Redfern there just to, on, on Anzac Day, and we deliberately said we won't march when they're marching in the main march. We'll march in the afternoon when they're ha playing two up or going to the pub and having a beer. We will recognise our diggers. And so we would start around a bit. I think we started at three o'clock at that time and uh, have our ceremony. The thing that made it so significant, and this is what people may not know, is that you just mentioned a very good friend of ours, Brendan Nelson. Brendan Nelson was the Minister of Defence at that time under the uh, Howard regime. And uh, we invited him to come, you know. We invited all the, all the politicians to come and honour the Aboriginal diggers, as was our protocol and duty to do that, as well as the, the president of the RSL, as well as other, you know, RSL people around the place that we, we were in anyways in, in Redfern there. And it was the... The president of the RSL, I don't know what his name is, and Brendan, who actually gave us the biggest piece of media attention that we could ever dream of, because uh, they went out and said that they would not recognise the Aboriginal march in Redfern. And when they did that, suddenly our little march became a big international uh <laughs> media event <laughs> and he's this little old black pastor here trying to figure out what to say to all this media about 
the ways in which your soldiers were treated. <laughs> and you didn't use a poem, did you? You had to go and think of all of these other responses that were really kind of bring home why this issue was important. Is that what it was all about? Yes, it, it's been suppressed for so long, yeah. That's just not only the, the many of our people who fought in overseas conflicts, but even the frontier wars weren't even thought of or even recognised at that time. So that's still an ongoing challenge. I know when we started the Colour Digger March, almost immediately or, or a year later, Michael Anderson said, well, we've got a march in Canberra there to recognise also the frontier wars. And, you know, I admire the ways in which our people grasp hold of these moments and these opportunities to actually bring to the attention of people to, to challenge the ideology of the, of the country about Indigenous people's issues. And so it was a really, really, you know, a rich time to actually make those changes and force those changes. And if you look at the uh, Australian War Memorial, the changes that happened from that time onward, from the 2006, 2007 onwards, in terms of the ways in which they had to open up, Yes, Brendan Nelson had to change his attitude and his uh, mindset about uh, Indigenous soldiers, and I think they're still working on that at the AMW. I think they've still got a long way to go yet. I think the country's got a long way to go to give us those, that full recognition. And so every year, for example, with the Colour Digger March, uh, we would highlight certain aspects of the war effort that our people were participated in, whether it be you know, our women, our women were so involved in the war effort. Unbelievable. But where is their statue? Where is their recognition? It still has to be worked on. Every every area of service that our people were in, we would try to find a way to, to honour them in that particular way. The Vietnam vets, my, I had two brothers who fought in Vietnam. And I know my eldest brother, when he came back, he was one of the first to actually be with the Yanks when they landed in, in, in Vietnam because he was a regular. But when he came back to March here in the streets of Sydney, uh, he told me the story for the first time. I, I, I've never known this, but he said, when I came back, I was marching in the streets and this w woman came over and poured a bucket of white paint over me. And he'd just come back from Vietnam. And so guess what he did? <laughs> he turned around and he went back to Vietnam. He did four tours of Vietnam. And to me, I, I was asking the question, you know, is it more safer for him to face the bullets of an enemy in a foreign country than is to face the ways in which they were treating him and other Vietnam vets here in his own country because of the protests at that time were quite volatile. And so he found his escape in a war zone. Isn't that fascinating? It's fascinating and it's also really sad because we know that a lot of um, returned servicemen and women generally as well as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people talk about those times when they come home uh, to nothing or to resistance of having gone because your country called. But the other side of that too, Uncle Ray, is the sacrifice that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in everyday life faced here in Australia during all of those conflicts. <laughs> Precisely, yeah. Yes, when they came back, they still came back under the under the old regime and they didn't get any of the benefits soldiers got. Uh, and still to this day, there's still a lot of those kind of challenges that, that, that are going on. But there's also, you know, we still also, as a, as a country and as a, as a nation, 
we're still not not asking those other deeper questions. Is that why did we join in with this flaming foreign country called the USA to go and fight in their wars? Why do we go to Afghanistan? Why do we go into these other countries because uh, because they wanted to go in there and fight? Don't know what they're fighting for, and every every war they went into, they lost anyways. With a bunch of flaming losers, and yet we're still following them into all these other war zones. For what reason, I have no idea. And do you think also when you you're really supportive of all of these different issues, but you're also thinking at the same time, well, what about education? That was a big issue a number of years ago for you, but it is today in really teaching Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people about education, but through a university that really has an Indigenous way of thinking, an Indigenous way of delivering that education. So how does that work and why should we have that in in our schools as the next step for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? Does it really provide much more than Western-style universities? Very good question. I, you know, I think the jury's still out on a lot of these kind of challenges and these kind of issues, and I think there's, there's still, uh, if I were to go on to, into some of our uh, research agendas there, you can see that there's still piles of research that's been done on these particular challenges, but no clear recommendations or actions as to what we should be doing. So in, in terms of that, you know, I had this opportunity of working with uh, St Andrew's uh, Cathedral School here in Sydney to actually starting an Aboriginal private school. And we did that back in 2007. And it was a challenge because, you know, it's a new thing and there was uh, resistance from both sides. But we did it. And 14 years later, last year, for example, our little school, Gawara School, that's located within a school. It's a school within a school. That was the philosophy I went with them to. I said, you know, if you look at the Aboriginal educational system, that we've had for the last 60,000 years, no child could fail our system. It was impossible to have any kind of failure rate. Impossible. But you take that child out of that impossible failure rate system and put them into your system, suddenly they're a failure. And so what I'm saying, it's not the child that's a failure, it's a flaming system. So how do you come up with a system where there is no, you know, you can reduce and mitigate against failure? And so to stick it inside a private school where there is, uh, you know, a better degree of uh, educational outcomes, then that sounded like something that would be reasonable for me anyways, at least. And last year, our little school, uh, in, in 13 years, we achieved one of the greatest results of being the best school uh, in the whole of the country. This is black and white. Just, just our little school got the highest award for being the best school in the country. And I, I thought, well, we must be doing something right. And we've got, you know, young people who've gone through the system now who are coming out and going into university and finding good jobs and all that kind of stuff. But this is only one little school. Uh, you know, we've got a cap on, on the number of kids who can go there and all that. And uh, we've seen other models now be, being generated out of that model. We've seen some ones that are coming out now, like a satellite model where the private school is here, and you've got these other ones who are, who are developing outside of the, 
there outside. Ours was inside the school and still is. It's still inside the school. That's the model we wanted to have a look at and we developed. But there's now other models that are that are emerging on the landscape. So it's really thinking outside the square, isn't it? And and those are some things that you're doing this week too is unbelievably all of the other issues that you're um, thinking about uh, and, and really taking action on as an advocate and a leader, but you're also devoted to climate change. What What's in store for you and, and what's this all about? Once again, I think it's it's making sure that our voice is actually heard when you can consider again that uh, for the last 60,000 years we have looked after country in such a way that it produced the kinds of uh, produce that could feed all the people all the time throughout the whole seasons uh, for 60,000 years. Now, that's incredible. So that knowledge, that incredible wisdom that made that happen, we can't allow the last 200 years to wipe that out. It's just, you know, I would be betraying my ancestors, my father, and the teachings of my ancestors if I was to allow that to happen. And I'd be turning my back on them and saying that their knowledge is, is useless and it's of, of nothing. Uh, I can't allow that to happen. And I hope that my children, I know uh, uh, I couldn't allow that to happen to them or, or to my grandchildren. So I've got to do something about it. And that's my responsibility. I know that. And uh, it's good to know that others uh, have taken on this, and you know, this responsibility. And when you consider too, Virginia, that someone like yourself too, you know, it's only since 1982 that the Aboriginal Education Policy came into play that gave us an opportunity to study at the white man's foot. And so we've gone into the universities now and we've learnt their ways and their understandings of things. We've been, we haven't yet given them, haven't had the opportunity to really critically analyse them from an Indigenous perspective to see where they're wrong and where they should be targeting their particular uh, strategies of, you know, to mitigate against all these things. And it's whether they will listen to us anyways. But our people are there. They are saying these things. They are saying the things that are necessary to make sure that we can mitigate against the serious issues that the, you know, the latest I, uh, IPCC report has said, you know, we're on red alert. It's danger zones up, up ahead. And uh, the doomsday clock gave us two major issues, two critical issues that we're facing as a human race on this little planet called Earth. One was nuclear war and uh, the way things are going, we could be heading towards that. But the other one was this one, this big issue of climate change and uh, how we mitigate against that. Uh, and our voices haven't been heard clearly and well enough. But I, I think, too, that our strategies in, to, to mitigate against uh, this here, too, would be perhaps the, the collapse of the... Uh, of the capitalist system in so many different ways. Uh, or it could be the reinvention of the capitalist system in, 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 in different ways too, if, if uh, our thoughts and our ideas were to be implemented. 
Well, that's really interesting because another side of that is, is what you were saying is protecting heritage. And I know in WA in Western Australia at Parliament House that they're actually having a protest and that means Aboriginal people in Western Australia. The Kimberley Land Council is going to be um, also supporting this um, because the Aboriginal Heritage Bill in WA really takes away so much power from Aboriginal traditional owners and the communities and puts them in a position where, for example, if they know uh, some secret and very important knowledge about a site and they don't tell the government about those particular issues, they can be fined. And if they keep it to themselves and then decide to tell their children, the children can be fined. So that's just one issue that they're fighting on the 19th of August. Um, I, I think it's around noon on uh, on that day. And so there's another example of really fighting for country. And even because of COVID and, and the restrictions that we have, and we understand that there's a whole bunch of health reasons, but still advocating Uncle Ray. So where do we get that strength from? I think we do get the get, get a lot of that strength from two two sources, and not a variety of sources from each other, uh, as well as from our country, from our mother, uh, as well as you know we we see what's happening to our mother, and we're, and we're very deeply concerned about, it and we have to do something. I mean, the alternative to fighting really is taking up a bottle and drinking yourself stupid. Uh, I think the other other part of this. Uh, strength comes from our understanding of our relationship to our creator as well. Uh, because really at the end of the day, he's the one who created the thing and he's the one who's going to uh, be the arbiter in the ways in which we've been treating it. I think most of us really don't know what's going to happen in the future, but we certainly know today and, and tomorrow that there are things to do. And what are those two things that you would love to see uh, after all of the experiences that you've been through and, and what you know and, and what you've lived, what are those two things that would be important to you? Uh, there, there's a couple of things there. I mean, there's so many things. But renewable energies would be one way of doing that. And I think for our people, we, we, we would need to start to look at ways of trying to get our deeper understanding through that kind of the technologies that this new economy is uh, Offering us, in terms of renewable energy, uh, 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 renewable enemies. I was going to say, but renewable enemies. No, I, th- <laughs> I think that was. I think that was in part one of our conversation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we we will need to look at waste management and recycling. We can't make a global home, our global community, a garbage dump. We've got to figure out how we're going to do that. And if there was a, another major one for me personally, it would be how we look after our sea and our oceans and preserve uh, all the things that that particular environment offers us. And so there's those three areas with, uh, you know, I mean, including air pollution and all those other things, but those, those three would be really up there in terms of the ways in which I'd like to see some clear understanding that we would move towards a much more uh, renewable energies uh, country that really looks at solar energy, wind energy, geothermal energy, all of these kind of issues that could could 
change the ways in which we live together and work together in our country. If we could look at the ways in which we can uh, uh, change the ways that we reduce our waste to adapt to much more better recycling processes, that would be good. And if we can look at the ways in which we can limit overfishing and all the unsustainable development activities in our coastal areas, you know, one of my dream places is the Great Barrier Reef too, and I know that that's going going south. And you know, I'd love to see some more work done in looking after our country and our water and our oceans and all of our waters. I mean, you know, you're you're much more of an expert on the water stuff, but our waters are polluted. I mean, goodness gracious me, I wouldn't need a fish out of out of out of uh, the Parramatta River here or out of the harbour. <laughs> No, no, especially when it glows at night. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember, when, I remember when I was um, a, a National Parks Ranger, a Discovery Ranger, and I went down there and I actually had a couple of oysters off uh, Botany Bay. You know, we went down and did that and I thought, wow, you know, we wouldn't do that today because uh, of those issues that you pointed to. Uh, there was so much contamination and, yes, the Sydney Harbour, what a beautiful place and that was such yeah. a, an incredible um, live and fruitful place, like you said, everything there, every need catered for, um, just really mm. a, a paradise. If there's one other thing, uh, Virginia, that I think is should be on top of our agenda too and it could be, it could be, be the one issue that could uh, embrace all of these challenges that we face, and that would be reconciliation. And I say this now because I've been a cynic of reconciliation for quite some time. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, just recently I've had to really rethink about what reconciliation is. And uh, I think it's one of the most important agendas on the planet at the moment. When you look at the ways in which the wars and the rumours of wars and the ways in which nations are fighting against nations and communities against communities and all of these kind of other wars that we're going through at the moment, then reconciliation should be at the top of the agenda. How do we reconcile all of our differences in the Middle East, in Africa, in Asia, in America, and here, even here in Australia? And uh, it's just not only reconciling our differences amongst ourselves but also with our environment, with our creator, with our ecology, with all the things that we've just mentioned, our oceans. How do we reconcile all of our differences with all of these things? So to me, reconciliation should be on our number one one part of our agenda. And it, it seems to me to cover all of these kind of issues that we're facing and then learning how that happens. And here, here's the, the, the strange thing about this as one of the cynics and critics of reconciliation of Australia even, and this is where my change comes in, is that the Australian, you know, the Aboriginal people of Australia have come up with a national framework for reconciliation. And I find that extraordinary. It came out of a blackfella's brain. When you look at the Reconciliation Council's agenda in terms of, uh, you know, the acronym RISE. How do you reflect, initiate, stretch, and elevate? Those four things. We've got a national framework here of what reconciliation means. 
And if you compare this, because I, I looked at uh, the reconciliation process also in South Africa, that's the other country that we should be looking at in terms of what they've put in their agenda in terms of their new politics and their new constitution and how they're going to try to achieve these kind of challenges. Uh, I think we've got a lot more things that we could focus our attention on in that reconciliation framework if we could put our minds to it because it then draws upon not our intellectual abilities and but more upon also our spiritual capabilities to actually work together to bring out the best for not only ourselves but for our our whole world. Thank you, Uncle Ray. It's been really wonderful yarning with you today and, and really sharing your thoughts and your experiences. And thank you so much. Manangu. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, thanks so much for listening, everyone. And Manangu, which in Wiradjuri means thank you. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And you can also reach us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum. We're looking forward to you joining the next conversation, which I'm going to have in a couple of days, and it's going to be a really great time to catch up. So we'll be back again next week with another episode of Democracy Sausage. And stay safe, jira jira, and we'll see you then. Look forward to it. Bye.